reading this morning will again be from Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills that we may serve you today, now and always. Amen. I love sauerkraut. I wonder if that's the first time I've ever been uttered. In a sermon. <clears throat> but I used to hate it. As a kid, I would watch my dad put sauerkraut on his hot dog, and then he would offer me some. And of course, my response was always, Ugh, yuck. He would then say, like all of us parents have said at some point, just try it, you'll like it. Or just have a little bit, it's good for you. Nope, I wasn't having it. It looked weird, it smelled funny. And so in my little kid mind, that meant it had to taste awful. But now I love it. I eat it as a snack. I throw it in a bowl, mix in some mustard. I don't even need a hot dog. Now, perhaps you already see the analogy I'm making with today's sermon text, the benefit of doing the things that Jesus commands us to do, even when they don't seem natural or right in our own eyes. 
And I admit that my analogy does break down fairly quickly at this point. I mean, when it comes to sauerkraut or any other number of foods, there's no accounting for taste. In fact, some of you probably cringed when I said that I eat it as a snack. And as a parent, I want my children to eat healthy. And there are, not, there are some hills not worth dying on, right? I don't force my kids to eat sauerkraut. There are other ways for them to get the healthy benefits. And besides, that would make me a hypocrite because there are things I won't eat still as an adult. I, don't, I won't eat okra. <laughs> I hate it as a kid. I still hate it now. And I have trust issues with some of you ladies that are trim healthy mama people that sneak okra into our chocolate desserts back there. But, um, but so it's not a perfect analogy, but my point is this. In the same way that we grew to love something that at first was weird and odd to our sensibilities, the Christian life requires us to do things that seem weird and odd to our sensibilities. But not only benefit us and others, But when we do these things that Jesus commanded, he changes our heart to love them. Now, it's one thing to do something you hate because you were told to do it, which is good. That's the initial goal of discipline, right? We had a little toddler with us at the beach this week, and he had just discovered that the whole house could be a coloring book. So his parents had to hide the bag of crayons from him. Well, at one point, he found the bag, and his daddy told him, Peter, give me the bag. And he did, because he had been well-trained to obey his daddy. But he didn't know the reason why. He didn't need to, right? He just needed to obey. But that's the first step in the process. The ultimate goal, of course, is to love the commands. That's what Doug Wilson says all the time, right, about training children. The parent's goal is not for them to simply obey the standard, is to love the standard. And that's Christ's goal for his bride as well. Whether we were baptized as an infant or as an adult, we all begin as babies in the faith. We require instruction, nourishment, help, discipline, and lots of grace. And that's exactly what we get when we gather for worship. Our first response to God's mercy toward us, according to Paul, is to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Worship, as we found out last week, is the only logical response to what Christ has done for us through his death, through his life and death, resurrection and ascension. And it's through worship that our hearts are changed and our minds are renewed in order that we may discern the will of God and better engage the culture. And last week I brought up how difficult it was to worship sometimes. That that Satan throws up many obstacles in our path because he knows how important it is. And then I also talked about how important it is to be thoughtful in our worship. To not structure our worship according to our own preferences and desires. But to use the pattern of worship found in the whole Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And this is our template. The, The biblical structure for corporate worship ensures that we are fed weekly with word and sacrament, that we are saturated with the scriptures, that we are broken down and built up again by the preaching of God's word, and that we are growing and maturing through our prayer and our praise. Well, this week I want to focus on the second half of our text because how we, we, be, how we behave as the church once we leave worship requires the same sort of faithfulness that we practice in worship. Doing hard things that don't fit with the world's standard 
or even make sense in our own minds. Again, worship is primary. Let's not forget that. It's where our minds are renewed into conformity with God's will. But then it doesn't end there. Each week our service concludes with a reading from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And this is a vital part of our order of worship. Our being sent out into the world to love and to serve our neighbors in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And right from the get-go, in verse 9, we see an example of how the Christian life stands at odds to worldly values and even our natural inclinations. Paul at first exhorts the church to let love be genuine, or as the New King James puts it, let love be without hypocrisy. Unless we wonder how love could be hypocritical, Paul tells us, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Genuine love does not call evil good and good evil. Paul has already laid out in Romans 1 what evil looks like. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the Bible is clear about what sin is. You don't have to be a trained scholar to understand what is evil and what is good. The fact that a large number of professing Christians, including pastors, unfortunately, the fact that they're confused over these distinctions is not the Bible's fault. It's because of their own soft minds and hardened hearts. Genuine love, then, does not celebrate sin and then virtue signal their tolerance. The hypocrite is the one that says, love is love. The Christian abhors this sentiment. But Paul then takes this definition of genuine love, that it clings to what is good, and then applies it directly to the church. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, in this phrase, there are two familial terms used here. The first is love one another. And this is not the regular used word for love, which is agape, but it's the word philistorgos, which means kindly affectioned. And and this type of love refers to the love between a parent and a child or a husband and a wife. The other word is a little more familiar, Philadelphia, and refers to brotherly love, which is ironic if you know anything about the fans of Philadelphia sports teams. But um, nonetheless, that's what it means. Uh, regardless, Paul's point seems to be that the, the love that the church exhibits towards one another and towards each other is that of a loving family, which is something that Paul has already alluded to in this chapter when he discussed the church being members, many members in one body. We are a family. 
And we are gathered around this table for a family meal. I also want to say something about what is implied in this verse. When Paul tells us to love one another with brotherly affection, he doesn't qualify it by saying love your friends or love the people in your age group or the people who have the same interest as you. Everyone in this room today has something positive to offer everyone else here. Again, this alludes back to what Paul has said about many members in one body and the specific gifts God graces each of his children with. But there is also a practical benefit of everyone being together, of everyone worshiping together and eating together, praying for each other, regardless of age group or common interests. Now, this is something that I already observe in this church. So I simply encourage you to keep at it with the same words that Paul uses. Outdo one another in showing honor. Siblings compete, right? Competition is a great thing if it's properly directed. And so Paul, after telling them to love each other as siblings, tells them to make a game of it. Who can show their brothers and sisters the most honor? But now notice how our passage ends. I'm going to jump ahead. Our passage ends in verse 21 by saying, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So our text, basically 9 through 21, begins and ends with how how we are supposed to respond to good and evil. And so you know how Spider-Man has a spidey sense that tingles when danger comes around? Well... If you are a student of Jim Jordan, your chiasm senses are tingling because we have a section that begins and ends with the same thing. We've talked about chiasms quite a, quite a bit here. But, it, um, but if you don't know, basically the idea is that in a section, each subsequent section as you get to the middle matches up and then the, the center point is sort of the theme of that passage. Now I'm not going to approach our text today chiastically, but... I do want to point out one thing about it. If there is a chiastic structure to this passage, then I think the central theme of it is found in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Most commentators break down our passage this morning into two sections. They'll do verse 9 through 13, which are instructions for how the church treats one another, And then the remaining sections, 14 through 21, is how the church is supposed to treat the world. And there is something to this. In fact, fact, this is how I want to ultimately lay out this text for you. But I don't think it's so cut and dry. In, In the central section in verse 14 is very interesting. It seems like it's referring to non Christians, right? I mean, after all, they're they're the ones who would be persecuting the Christians. But there is a curious connection between verse 14 and verse 13. If we ignore the paragraph break that's in most of our Bibles, verse 13 and 14 say, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The center of that section is translated directly from the Greek, says this, Pursue hospitality. Bless those who pursue you. It's the same word used, pursue. Remember, everything we've read in Romans 12 up to this point has been directed towards the church in regards to how they are to treat one another. 
Do not think of yourselves more highly than others. Use your gifts to support one another. Love one another genuinely. Display brotherly affection. Outdo one another, showing honor. The list goes on. The fact that Paul has to exhort them to do this is probably an indication that it didn't come easy. Indeed, we have many examples throughout Paul's letters of him chastising the church because they were acting like the world and treating each other poorly. And I think many of us here can think of times that we have been treated poorly by fellow Christians, perhaps even persecuted. And if you doubt it, I can direct you to a few Facebook posts for your amusement. But I don't want to belabor this point. I just want to emphasize that it is easy for us to act like the world if we're not careful. And I think this is why Paul lays out this passage in, in this particular order. Draw near to God. Use your gifts to support the church. Love and serve your brothers and sisters in the church. And then love your neighbor, even your enemy. The progression matters. It's a chain of maturation and sanctification that leads us to be able to endure the really hard times. But more than that, this progression allows us to participate in the extension of God's kingdom. Remember, God changes the world through us. When we obey, doing what Paul lays out for us in this chapter, then God rolls up his sleeves and gets to work. And that's why I think verse 14 is so central to this whole passage. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. One commentator puts it this way. Blessing... Someone is calling on God to enter their life, while cursing is a call for God to remove himself. Cursing our enemy is a natural inclination. Even the disciples in Luke 9 want to rain down fire on their enemies, but Jesus rebukes them. Remember, God is the one who exacts vengeance, not us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Excuse me. And this is what blessing our enemy does. It hands it over to God. If blessing someone is asking for God to draw near them, well, that's a wonderful and terrifying thing. The wicked need to be confronted with the holy God for their own good. When we sing the imprecatory psalms and we ask God to judge the wicked, there are two ways this can happen. And both require death. It's good and right that we should want to see evil destroyed. But we should also desire the death and resurrection of the evildoer. This is why we bless our enemies. We're asking God to intervene and make things right. However, he sees fit to do it. And this allows us to respond in the proper way, I think, with, with joy. In Jeremiah 51, God promises to deal with Babylon for their wickedness against Israel. It's a long chapter, but I want to highlight a couple of pertinent verses. Beginning in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. The violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon. Let the inhabitant of Zion say, My blood be upon the inhabitants of, of Chaldea. Let Jerusalem say, Therefore, thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up, dry up her sea and make her fountain dry, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruin. First of all, notice that the Lord is taking vengeance on Babylon, not Israel. And that this vengeance results in their destruction. This is one way that God takes vengeance. But notice as well that this prophecy of destruction is not just aimed at the nation of Babylon in general, but the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is specifically called out. Jeremiah's prophecy here takes place before the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you recall, Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler that oversaw Babylon's three campaigns into Jerusalem. The final one being the destruction of the temple and the city. But the first time Babylon came into Jerusalem, all he did was capture some of the choicest young men and brought them back to Babylon to be trained to serve their nation. Remember Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was their faithfulness that actually served to convert Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4.37 Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is another way that God takes vengeance. Naturally, it's easy to rejoice at this way, when God chooses to save someone, even your enemy, though I suppose it could be said that many in Israel did not rejoice at Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, in the same way that perhaps some Christians would not have rejoiced if, say, Osama bin Laden had truly converted. But that's another sermon. Uh, notice, though, what it says in verse 48. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing for joy over Babylon. For the destroyers shall come against them out of the north, declares the Lord. Sing with joy at their destruction. It sounds cruel to our sensitive ears, but the destruction of the wicked is a reason to celebrate, to rejoice. And I think we are able to do this because it is the Lord who has done it, not us. There is no joy when we seek vengeance. I mean, a lot, at least not true joy. Justice is one thing. But when we attempt to repay evil with evil, we only feed our sinful desires. But when God exacts vengeance for us, this frees us up to respond joyfully at the work He has done. We can trust that God is always righteous in everything He does. And this is why Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God. The other day, I was reminded of the Georgia Guildstones, which were destroyed earlier this week, either by an explosive device or possibly lightning, uh, depending on who you listen to. But uh, anyways, if you're not familiar, the Georgia Guildstones are these massive stones, similar to Stonehenge, that were anonymously commissioned back in 1979 as a tribute to the values of the Enlightenment, sort of a godless Ten Commandments. And I won't read them all, but, but here are a few of the ten statements inscribed on these giant stones. Maintain, humani- maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. That's the first commandment. Second commandment was guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Uh, I think the next one was rule, passion, faith, and tradition, and all things with tempered reason. 
And much like the Enlightenment itself, these guides promote an idealized or progressive vision for America that supposedly can be achieved, achieved apart from God. If, if everyone would just buy into the same worldview and fall in line and get educated, right? But it's the final commandment, though, that cracked me up as I was meditating on Romans 12 this week. Be not a cancer on the earth, leave room for nature, leave room for nature. So that's the final commandment that was struck down. Naturally, as with all things progressive, this is a very fluid statement. It simultaneously refers to environmentalism, as well as that great myth of overpopulation. But nature can also refer to pretty much anything nowadays, right? I'm not a guy, I'm a girl, because of nature. I was born gay, because of nature. I ought to be able to have sex with anyone without responsibility of marriage and children, because nature. Actually, the Georgia Guildstones are not a godless Ten Commandments. They just ignore the one true God. Their God is nature with a capital N. They worship and they worship faithfully. When progressives say leave room for nature, what they really mean is leave room for your desires, your preferences, your sins. And then they turn around and they quote their favorite passage of the Bible at us, do not judge. But God defines nature and he is a God of judgment. Paul tells us to leave it to the wrath of God. That phrase in the Greek is more literally translated, give place. So you could translate it like this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but give place, or perhaps leave room for the wrath of God. This is what we do when we bless our enemies. But the command doesn't end there. Immediately, we're given an additional course of action. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. For those of you reading along with Peace Like a River, you'll recall the scene from a few chapters ago when the dad is fired by the school principal. The principal, Mr. Holgram, is a petty, vindictive man with terrible acne all over his face, and he proceeds to humiliate and then fire the dad who's the janitor, in front of the whole school. And how does the dad respond? It's one of the miracles in the story. He reaches up, touches Mr. Holgram on the face, and heals his acne. Of course, this is how God responds to our wickedness. Earlier in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In his death, Christ's body was broken, his blood was spilled. But then he offers us his body and blood as a token of peace. The bread and the wine, food and drink, We were enemies of God, destitute, without hope, hungry, and thirsty. He offered us food and drink. Like our Father, we are to do the same to our enemies. The burning coals heaped upon the head are a sign of judgment. If our enemy rejects our peace offering, they do so to their own detriment. Many will. 
many have rejected God's invitation to peace as well. But this is how we overcome evil with good. This is genuine love. It may, not, it, it may not seem right to our natural proclivities, but this is how we hate sin and cling to righteousness. Not revenge, but with love. And it's not a love that ex- accepts wickedness for what it is. It's a love that abhors evil and calls sin what it truly is. But in order to do this properly, we must hold fast to what is good. This is what we're doing here. Holding fast to the good means that we hold fast to Jesus. When he says come, we come. And when we draw near to him, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.